Uh, welcome to uh, today's Bible study. We're jumping into 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so if you've been following along with us uh, in this series, which I would highly encourage, but if not, that's okay too. But if you've been following along with us, we've done an introduction. We've covered the first chapter, the second chapter. We also delve deeply into uh, male and female roles within the church. I'd encourage you to check out the channel, a playlist specific to all these videos called the Pastoral Epistles. And today we're jumping into chapter 3. The main um, brunt of what we're going to be covering today is qualifications for overseers slash pastors and that of deacons or another word is servants. So we're going to be covering uh, that main section today in uh, chapter 3 and also uh, we'll mention on a little bit towards the uh, end of this chapter as we talk about um, just a kind of proclamation of Jesus uh, so this is a really helpful chapter. Also, I'm going to be showing you some things, some charts. We're going to talk through some majorly the, the word choices that are used here. I think that's going to be really important and helpful. And uh, we're going to be talking through this as we wade through these waters together. So thanks for tuning in with us. As always, you can check the description for timestamps if you want to jump ahead to certain parts. So uh, with that being said, uh, today uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read as we look on this together, if you're looking on your screen with me, um, what the Bible has to say about what should be a qualification for those who are wanting to aspire to or become a pastor. This is such an important text. It's foundational and fundamental to the church and should be held in high regard and high respect. And should be taken seriously every last word. And I'm really going to try and glean, try and uh, extract and suck out everything that's here in this text. Uh, making sure that we don't skip over this. So without further ado, uh, chapter 3 verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. Okay, or in other words, this, this uh, what I'm about to tell you is, is uh, you can trust this. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Okay, so as we're looking at this text, and, and we're also going to delve into this later on in chapter 5, we're going to be talking more specifically about this pastoral office. But as we're talking through qualifications, we see this in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. We see this in Titus. We see this in Peter. We see this all throughout the New Testament. There's going to be a couple words that are used for the office, right, or the job of pastor. So foundationally, uh, we're going to see two offices in the New Testament. And I am going to do a separate video. It'll either be after this video or it may be um, towards the end after chapter five. But I'm going to do a video covering early Christianity, covering um, church office, uh, offices, plural, and talk about some of what we see throughout church history with bishops, pastors, and deacons. And uh, we'll sort all through all of that. So if you have questions, I'd encourage you to check out that video or I'll leave them in the comment section down below. But for this video, uh, whenever you see overseer, replace that word with pastor. And the reason I say pastor is because that's the word predominantly used everywhere in regards to 
um, a priest or someone who is like this. When, when I say priest, if you're like me, you think of Catholic Church, or if I say father, uh, which um, th- those are um, different words we use for this similar office. But but here, whenever we see bishop, overseer, pastor, elder, all these things are talking about the same exact office, and that's of a, a church leader. And so we'll get deep into um, particulars with that. But for this, for our purposes here today, uh, we're just going to be in in the text and focusing on the text. So this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. So first of all, let me say uh, pastors, uh, they are serving in a a high and sacred position. Um, It is a challenging position. I've seen it up close many years with multiple pastors, different pastors working alongside them. And, And also it's a very challenging job. And, and I think what is said here is, is important, and we'll unpack this in uh, the next verses. But here we see in the first verse, the pastor's desire to become a pastor or the, the man's desire to become a pastor. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, and I think that's a vital component. I think the church needs to affirm that gifting, see that gifting, whether that's through a board of pastors or elders or deacons. People need to see that Holy Spirit gifting in someone and then affirm that before they become a pastor. But on the flip side, that person, that guy, he needs to be wanting to become a pastor and then also putting his best foot forward towards walking in that. Um, And what he can do practically, he needs to start being really, really trained and skilled in the word and really chasing after that and also really, really skilled and crafty in character and becoming really, really distinguished by his character. Um, So those are two main things that the, uh, the future elder needs to be pursuing. And um, it says he desires a noble work. An overseer, uh, therefore, must be above reproach. So what we're about to see here is a character description, okay? Not a job description, a character description of the pastor. And before we jump into this, I, I just wanted to point this out. Um, actually, I'll, I'll drag and, and show you. Um, what I'm looking at over here, if I can grab it, here it is. This Faith Life uh, Study Bible, I thought in this chart here, they had a really good uh, analysis. So if you're looking with me, when we see this Greek word episkopos, right, it, it tends to mean supervisor, overseer, a guardian, a watcher, a protector of, right? So we can look at this top, um, uh, English translation over here, and we can see usually uh, the version we're using is the Christian Standard Bible, which is a revised edition of the Holman Christian Standard Bible here. So they translate it as we just saw in the text, and we'll go back to. They translate this overseer, and uh, here in other translations, uh, this is translated bishop, and uh, even in some translations, this is um, translated elder. So no need to be confused here. This is all talking about uh, the similar office. And we'll talk about maybe maybe possible room for distinction between bishop and elder slash pastor. But uh, here, for our purposes, it's all the same thing. Okay, what what's being discussed. And um, what I want you to notice here, the main reason I'm, I'm taking you here is right here. Um, these two words that we mainly see, episkopos and presbyteros, right? This is the word episkopos. We get episcopal, episcopal. But 
Uh, Episcopal, you may think of the Episcopal Church, right? This is this is relating to church structure and uh, how they've chosen to organize what's called polity. Polity being another word for how, how do you see pastors, deacons, and, and members. Um, with the uh, Presbyterian Church, Presbyteros. Um, and, and so uh, these are distinguishing marks of, of church polity that that uh, have separated churches and and maybe rightly so because um, not that we should be separated over uh, anything as we're all one church but at the same time this the way we see this issue very much so affects how we go about doing church life Um, so so this is an important issue and what I want you to see here is that it has a list of of where these words, how often they're used in the the New Testament. So in the Gospels, we have zero for both. Uh, So if we're looking for definitive teaching from Jesus, uh, from his mouth, it's not there. We have 10 uses of Presbyterios um, and one use of Episcopos, Paul's letters. uh, We see both used as well. And uh, the general letters, we see one of Episcopos, five of Presbyteros, totaling out to uh, five total New Testament uses of Episcopos uh, and 18 total uses of Presbyteros. And so in our uh, church polity, church structure video, that'll be coming out in the near future. We'll we'll dive into all this. But as we're jumping into this, I just didn't want you to get confused as you're reading this. I want you to be on the same page with me, and I want you to understand. And so uh, we'll unpack uh, Episcopal uh, church government. We're going to unpack Presbyterian church government. We're going to unpack congregational church government and the um, one, two, three, uh, four, uh, maybe five different types of congregational church governments that's going to be in a separate video, but know that that content's coming. It's going to be there. Um, but for this, an overseer uh, in verse two, therefore, uh, must be above reproach, right? So when we see overseer, I just want to highlight this. You probably can't see it when I click over my uh, mouse, but it's the word episcopos, right? So if I click here and do study, I'll drag it over here so you can see it. This is where we get this word episcopos, right? So episcopos is what's translated overseer, right? Or episcopal. And and uh, that'll make more sense as we go along. But, but I just wanted to note that. So uh, it's those two Greek words that are translated into the three different words that we have in the English. So that's, that's significant. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, right? Good reputation. Uh, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Okay, and for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to do a deep dive into every single one of these word descriptions, but I do want to point out a few of them. Most of them, they should speak for themselves. Uh, We'll do a quick scan together through this. And uh, make sure that I'm also faithfully teaching the Bible while also trying to uh, maintain brevity. So, must be above reproach. In other words, they need to have a good reputation and they need to be living the type of lifestyle that um, it warrants a good reputation. Secondly, the husband of one wife. 
what this I don't think is speaking to is, uh, you know, God forbid a pastor has had one of his wives die and then has remarried upon her death. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that uh, the Greek is a one woman man. Uh, the literal translation. So I think what we're seeing here with the husband of of one wife, I think it's speaking to marital fidelity. So maybe a, a man before he was a Christian lived a life of sin. And then once he became a Christian, he worked through those issues and became a faithful husband. I don't think that guy's disqualified personally. Contextualizing this passage is hard because we there's a lot to take into account, a lot of culture, a lot of world uh, situations. So self-controlled, explainable, sensible, respectable, hospitable. Here's this one I really want to point out, okay? Able to teach. Able to teach. The reason I'm making a big deal about this is because in the qualifications for a deacon or a servant versus a pastor... The one uh, description that distinguishes these two New Testament church offices is that of being able to teach. So a deacon is not called to be able to teach. A pastor is most definitely called to be able to teach. And so when I, I want to recap really quick in uh, chapter 2 of First um, Timothy. If you remember, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, right? And, and we covered that. And the reason I wanted to go back to that is that's talking about this. These two are connected. So when we see able to teach, we're talking about this authoritative teaching that comes from the New Testament office of the pastor slash elder slash overseer slash bishop, whatever words we want to use, the pastor's office. That's what this is speaking to. So able to teach. Um, this doesn't mean that they need to be the next uh, TV show world uh, wide phenomenon of the most gifted preacher. What this means is they need to know doctrine well enough that they can explain it. They need to understand the Christian faith to the degree that they can sit in front of someone and explain it well. So uh, we may have multiple pastors in our world and some are more gifted Bible teachers than others. And there's different reasons for that. But if they are both uh, orthodox or correct and true and faithful in their interpretation of Scripture and their understanding of Scripture, and there's a deep well of knowledge of the Scriptures and respect and submission to, those are both qualified men. So able to teach, non-excessive drinker. These are all character qualities that need to be thoroughly examined when someone is um, appraising a pastor or a future pastor. Uh, not a bully, but gentle. This is so important. Uh, this is neglected in our CEO, uh, mega church, crazy style um, churches these days. Um they, they need to be able to, yes, make hard decisions. Yes, um, be able to be tough when toughness is needed. But they also need to not be a bully. And if there's bullying behavior, this, this is disqualifying in the sense that so long as that's in their life, they shouldn't be pastors, right? This is a qualification of a pastor. So if they get their way and they do it by bullying, uh, this isn't the mark of a pastor's character so not someone god would want in the pastoral office 
Um, now, they need to be tough, and they need to be really tough for lots of reasons, but they don't need to be a bully. Uh, those are very different things. Not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So, in other words, and pastors are called to fight the good fight, just like every Christian is. But quarrelsome, this is someone who's looking to argue about everything. Uh, this is someone who's looking to argue when arguments need not have. Uh, this is someone who's looking to be divided when division doesn't need to happen. Um, so that's what quarrelsome's getting at. Not greedy, right? Gosh, how, how bad of a reputation do most pastors have because of the greediness of some some pastors that we've seen in, in uh, our day and age, right? This isn't a mark of a, a true pastor. It says he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity, right? So the mark of the home, it's the testing ground for the mark of a pastor. So if a man is failing to lead his family in the home, that, that's really not a mark of someone you want to put in charge of more. As Jesus taught us, he who is faithful and little, right, he'll put in charge of many. So uh, that's a good principle to apply here. If if a pastor is really struggling to shepherd his own family, um, God has not yet put him in a place where he should be shepherding the whole church. Likewise, if if maybe a pastor in his role begins to start to fail and struggle in his family life, there's things that need to be addressed, right? And um, th that's a complicated issue, but that means something's going wrong and it needs to be changed. But Notice this intimate link between home life and church life. Um, and so the pastor should be the model of home life to then be an example in church life. And so often pastors uh, neglect the home life for the sake of the church life. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. And uh, no fruit is born from that. I don't care what anyone says. It's, it's in direct violation of the scriptures. So the pastor's home life should come before the pastor's church life. And so when pastors are too busy and they neglect to make time for their, their family, because maybe their church is forcing them that way, there's a lot of possibilities for why this could be happening. They, they fail. They, um, they don't meet qualifications at that point. So keep that in mind. Churches, keep that in mind, pastors. If anyone, he says, verse 5, does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church, right? This intimate connection. Faithfulness in the home should be representative of a, a capacity to be able to then faithfully lead in the church. He says in verse 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Right? We know Satan was a, a treasured divine being and he fell and he chose to rebel against God. And so what we see here is that someone who is a new convert, you don't just put them in charge, right? If, if you uh, just got hired at a job um, at a really big company and you're going into an entry level position, probably your promotion shouldn't be to the CEO, right? If you have just been brought into the Christian faith and you're not uh, most likely to that place where you've just robustly grown in character, you haven't had uh, years or, or, or excessive amounts of time to really grow skilled in the knowledge of the word, um, it's not your place to be a pastor. 
you can't lead what you don't know. And so um, that's why it's so clear. I mean, how long has this person been a Christian? Have they been a Christian a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade? How long? And, and this is a very important question. Um, and, and what has their life looked like over that, that span of time? So uh, verse uh, six, as we just covered, verse seven, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. It's a great device uh, in the tool belt of Satan. If, if the pastor has a horrible reputation in the community, it's going to really, really do damage to that whole church's body's ability to reach out into the community because that reputation is going to carry over to the whole church. And so they need to have a good reputation and need to be above reproach, as it says, or above uh, being approached with something uh, in their, their recent past that would disqualify them or, or cause people to look down upon them for uh, ungodly reasons. That's really important. I want to take a second and look at this word deacons. Um, I know we're doing a lot in the uh, original language today, but this is such an important passage that we know the, the uh, original language. Um, I think this is important because so often I think we can get the uh, office of deacon confused. And the way in which I think we get it confused is we elevate it beyond what it was ever meant to be. Uh, we give more authority to it than it was ever meant to have. And while deacon is an office above the average uh, church member, and that's clearly been agreed upon all throughout church history, and we see that clearly in the text, we see this is an office because there's qualifications for it. Not everyone is in this. Um, but the reason that I think it can get overblown, I think is because it's given too much authority. And so if we go back to 2 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy, uh, the second chapter, uh, and we go to uh, verse 12, where Paul says that that line, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. We're going to see that deacons aren't called to be able to teach. That's not the job description. It's not the character qualification. And so there's not this high level of authority that we do see for the pastor's office. That's why for me personally, along with some, some textual interpretation, I, I don't see a problem with women deacons so long as we have a, a biblical understanding of deacon. Uh, for myself personally, without getting too far into um, my life and story, I really want to focus on the text, but I've been in uh, multiple Southern Baptist churches and in Southern Baptist church, there's usually a, a single pastor, multiple deacon model. And usually that, that board of deacons ends up functioning like a uh, board of elders, a board of pastors, and they make decisions that should be reserved to elders. And so we can uh, have the right title and the wrong um, authority and job position. And when that happens, uh, we end up uh, calling something that it's not, right? If, if we have a, a group of people that, that run and manage and oversee the church, and they just don't teach the Bible, well, they're functioning in an elder role, but they may be called deacons. And so we'll get into that in another video, but deacons here, uh, they're not called to rule the church. They're not called to govern the church, whereas elders are called to rule and, and govern the church, which we'll see explicitly in 1 Timothy chapter 5 
and in 1 Peter. So uh, deacons, uh, diakonos, um, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith or the gospel truth of, of uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, they can serve as, as deacons. I want to stop here in verse 10, okay? So verse 10 is really important. So one of the qualifications for deacons isn't that it's just a random person, right? We see that with elders, they can't be a recent convert because that, that opens up the door for abuse. That opens up the door for, for um, a failure to um, protect that person and protect the church. And so here in verse 10, when we're dealing with deacons or servants of the church, uh, they must also uh, be tested first. So we need to have watched someone's life and ha ask the question, have they consistently lived a faithful Christian life? Do they have a track record where they're walking in godliness? And only then, right, as we see in the verse, if they prove blameless, if there's evidence for the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is ongoing and uh, continually being brought from their life, then they can serve as deacons. But if we don't see evidence of Holy Spirit regeneration, if we don't see evidence of a distinguishing of them from the average person, the average church member in character and godliness, they do not need to be put in a position of deacon. Uh, that's just the clear teaching of the Bible. They must be tested first. There needs to be some kind of process, some kind of procedure, some kind of uh, test to use the, the language of the Bible to see if, if they've been living a faithful life, walking in godliness. Uh, if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. It's just plain as day. We just need to focus and learn from the text. It's right there. Verse 11, if you'll see here, it's got this side note of uh, women. I want to really, this is one of the Greek words I really wanted us to look at together. I, I would uh, translate this women. Uh, the reason for that, if we'll look at this together, um, we see here the word is gune. Um, it can be translated uh, wife or women. So when we see, uh, as I was talking about elders just a little bit ago, I said that the Greek translation is a one woman man. Okay. W what I mean by that is that the Greek word for man and for husband, it's the same. The Greek word for women or for a wife, it is the same. So this, this bounces us into some challenging uh, territory as we're trying to translate from the Greek into the English. So it is uh, 213 times in the New Testament. And out of these uh, 213 times, um, 111 of these, if you're looking with me, it is translated woman. Uh, 69 times it is translated wife. And uh, at other times it's translated women's or, or these other translations. But in a sum total, uh, I've got it written down in my Bible over here in my notes. Um, as a sum total, gune, it's, it's translated usually women, 130 out of these 231 times we see it in the New Testament. And it's translated 
99 times out of 230 wife. So we see the more common translation usually is women instead of wife. And so when we come to this text and someone like me is saying, hey, wives could be translated women, it's not that I'm trying to, to twist the text, but what I'm trying to say is this word more often than not is translated women. So there's two views really how you can look at this text. You can see as uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is talking about qualifications for elders, then goes into deacons, then addresses deacons' wives, and then goes back to deacons here in verse 12. Another way you can see it is that it is addressing in chapter 3 elders, then it addresses male deacons, then in verse 11 addresses female deacons, then verse 12 back to male deacons. Um, and so the church has debated this historically. This has been a challenge um, for me. If I can be clear, um, I did a whole video on uh, complementarianism versus egalitarianism or the differences between genders and how God orders them and structures them within the church body. I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to check out that video as well. But for our, our purposes here today, um, I see in a biblical diaconate, in a, a biblical deacon, of which I personally have seen very few, but in a biblical diaconate, there is no problem with female deacons. And that's my <laughs> definitive statement there. In an unbiblical uh, church structure, maybe there shouldn't be female deacons. And I would strongly back behind that statement as well. So there, th this is a nuanced issue that, that uh, as I'm uploading a video to YouTube and, and I'm here by myself, not looking at a specific church, I can't really speak to a specificity, right? For a biblical deacon can be a man or a woman. But in your context at your church, should your deacons be, um, be men and women? I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell you in a biblical context, uh, there is no problem with female deacons and uh, there's nothing to overrule Paul's statement, I do not allow a woman to be an authority over a man. If uh, the diaconate is not holding the authority as they shouldn't be, there's really no problem here. So uh, there's that little rant. Take that for what you will. I know this is a contentious issue and I'm trying to make sure we're understanding this is a nuance issue. Um, and I want to do it justice. I want to be a faithful interpreter of God's word. And I want you to understand this. If you have any questions, please uh, leave those below. So wives, we talked about how often it's translated women. Um, so what I'm saying, I'm not, I showed it to you. I'm not just making this up. And as they say, pulling out of my butt. So uh, wives likewise should be worthy of respect. I would translate it. Women likewise should be worthy of respect, not slanderers self-controlled, faithful in everything. So we see that women here are held to the same standard as the men in regards to character, right? I, I would put the character qualifications as identical for, for women or for men. Deacons are to be uh, husbands of one wife, managing their children and their households competently. Uh, for those who have served well as deacons, acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, right? So like I said, there's two different ways to see this. You can see this as referencing men, then women, then men again. Or you can see this as representing uh, 
um, a message that is explicitly to men. This is a challenging text, but I think under the umbrella of complementarianism, uh, we do not do a, a misjustice or a misservice uh, to allowing women deacons, especially in the context of Bible interpretation of this verse and of a verse 11. And I don't think practically um, there's there's anything wrong personally. I, I don't see anything wrong with it, given that we're we're um, following the Bible's teaching of the role of, of servant and the role of overseer. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's a good thing uh, to serve as a deacon. It, uh, it uh, most definitely acquires a good standing for yourself before the Lord and, and before your fellow man. So that's really important to note. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, Paul says. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, right? So Paul is definitively giving us church teaching on church polity, church structure, church government, church offices. He's saying, I'm writing this to you because if I don't have time to get there, right, uh, soon, that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in the church. He wants Timothy to understand church structure well. He says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We see this, uh, how this text is, is uh, kind of shifted out, indented out. It speaks to it being uh, uh, maybe like a, a poem or part of a song. And in this, I wanted to point out that um, the church, as we see in verse 14 and 15, the church is, as he says in the text, God's household, right? That's where I see, as we talked about in an, another video on complementarianism and egalitarianism. This is clearly uh, God's church is God's household, right? We see this intimate connection between the household of a man and the household of a church. God's household, it's God's dwelling place. I think that's important to note. Uh, we're getting all this from uh, 14 and, and 15. So we see uh, that people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That's a really important statement which is uh, the church of the living God, right? Uh, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we see that it's God's household. It's God's dwelling place, right? The church of the living God. He now indwells believers through the Holy Spirit. And as we gather together, we are the church of the living God. And last, um, the church is God's uh, truth agent and protector, right? Uh, of the faith. Uh, where do we see this right here? The pillar and foundation of the truth. So not only is the church the pillar of the truth and the foundation of the truth, it is um, the place in which God has given his gospel message to be held uh, to the end of time. Uh, so that's just uh, something I wanted to point out. Lastly, in, in uh, verse 16, I, I did a little uh, wordplay here, and I wanted to share that with you in, in my Bible that I take notes in. And line by line, I kind of put a word beside it. Uh, this first line, he was manifested in the flesh. Uh, to summarize that, I put, 
incarnation, uh, namely the incarnation of Christ, incarnation. That second line, vindicated in the spirit, I put confirmation, right? Vindication in the spirit, confirmation. So incarnation, um, the next line, uh, confirmation. For that third line, seen by angels, um, I put uh, affirmation, right, of the angels. The next line, uh, preached among the nations, I put proclamation. The line uh, following that, so seen by angels, preached among the nations, proclamation. Believed on in the world, salvation. And uh, finally, uh, taken up in glory, Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension into heaven is a reconciliation of Jesus with the Father and mankind, ultimately on the back of Jesus uh, with the Son and the Father uh, all together. So in those lines, um, in uh, verse uh, 16, if you're looking at it with me, uh, we've got incarnation, we've got confirmation, we've got affirmation, and here we've got proclamation, and then here we've got salvation, and lastly, we've got uh, reconciliation. This uh, verse 16 is such a great, great summary of the, the purpose and mission of Jesus, um, what God did to reconcile mankind to himself. Uh, and that is the mystery of godliness. These things, uh, God becoming a man in the flesh, uh, the Holy Spirit coming into the life of Christ and, and working alongside the Son, to do great and miraculous things all throughout his life and even in his resurrection, to be seen by the angels, witnessed by this other divine realm, divine group of beings, uh, preached among the nations. This is now being shared around the world and uh, is, is not only for the Jew, but also the Gentile. And uh, he is being believed on in the world. People have been getting saved and, and reconciled with God for, for uh, thousands of years now. And uh, as we... Uh, saw that Jesus was uh, believed on the world. Uh, he has been taken up in glory and remains at the right hand of the Father. And so uh, that's a reason to worship him, praise him. Uh, we love Jesus here on this channel and uh, super excited for this uh, next chapter coming up of uh, Elder and Deacon. If you have a particular church question, as I address in this video, uh, I'd love to speak to that personally and, and maybe uh, speak into your situation as there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands uh, more than I know uh, that I could count of churches which all have unique situations going on so if there's any way I could speak to you or may, maybe sort this out for you personally uh, with your church situation I'd be happy to do that just leave me a, a question in the comment section down below if this video is helpful for you uh, please give it a like subscribe if you're interested in more content like this and as I said, if you're interested in the gender distinction video, that's out on my channel as well. Also, if you're interested in church structure, at the time of this video being published, it's not yet come out, but is in the very near future. But maybe by the time you're watching that, this video is probably already out and you can do a deep dive with me as we explore Catholic, church polity, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. We're going to look at all these different ways that people have tried to interpret these handful of verses that the Bible gives us in regards to church structure. And we're going to do a dive into these different verses so that we can take all this evidence of the Bible together and then faithfully interpret it uh, for our lives as this has a huge impact. 
Uh, thanks for tuning in with us. Uh, glad to have you and uh, would love to hear from you on our channel.